This is the Beat Generation, a look at music throughout the years that changed our world. From the Beat Generation musicians of the 60s to the musicians we grew up with throughout the decades, they've become known for their influence on the music that has shaped the soundtrack of our lives, simply known as the Beat Generation. Welcome to Season 2 of The Beat Generation, produced in association with Bad Boys Productions, Townsville's Triple TFM and the Community Broadcast Association of Australia. This show got its name from the 50s and 60s writers that inspired so many musicians. Now each week we'll take a look into music and artists throughout the years that have changed the face of the musical landscape. A full song listing can be found at our Facebook page, forward slash music that changed the world. And make sure you check out our Instagram page, The Beat Generation Podcast. And a podcast of this show and past episodes can be found at Apple and Spotify, along with some of our other shows, including The Bad Boys and Secret Men's Business. Check out our shows, and if you like what you hear, then make sure you leave a review. So sit back, put your headphones on, crank up the dial, and journey with us this week with a special interview with an Oz Rock legend, member of the Angels, Ganga Jang, and the Party Boys, Buzz Bidstrup. I'm Shane Bryan, and this is The Beat Generation. Well, Graham Buzz Bidstrup has been a driving force in Oz Rock for many, many years, including being a founding member of a band that wrote what has become the unofficial anthem of Australia. Now, I'm talking, of course, about Ganga Jang. That's where we start this week's Beat Generation with the 1984 smash hit single, Sounds of Then. Let's take a listen, and when we return, the man himself, Buzz Bidstrup. 1984. I think I hear the sounds of then, and people talking scenes recalled. By minute movement and songs that fall. From the back and take a certain texture, that certain smell. The lying sweat of familiar sheets in Yeah. 
there's not many artists who can say that they've looked into the infamous little black book that Bon Scott wrote all of his songs in or started a band that emerged out of a TV show decades before the likes of Idol or The Voice and certainly very few who can say that they have produced some of the legends in Australian music history. Yet this man can claim all of that and more. From sharing the stage with one of the greatest bands of the 70s and 80s, The Angels, through to the heartfelt legacy left by Indigenous artist Jimmy Little that has since consumed his years in later life, Graham Buzz Bitstrip has been a manager, a drummer, a guitarist, a producer and an acclaimed songwriter, a friend to music greats like Bon Scott, Doc Neeson, Chris Bailey, James Rain, Jimmy Barnes. Buzz trained under the legendary eyes of Velvet Records' Vander and Young and that is where we're going to take our cue today. Graham Buzz Bidstrup, it is an absolute pleasure to welcome you to the first episode of the brand new season two of The Beat Generation. Thanks, Shane. It's, uh, it's really nice to be here, man. Now, I have to say, when I was given the opportunity to chat with you and I had a look at all the work that you've done, I realised that there were so many songs that actually shaped the soundtrack to my life. I have all. Going through the Angels, Ganga Jang, Mondo Rock, the Party Boys. I mean, you sent through a list and said, let's play these ones. Yeah. I looked at them and said, oh, my God, these songs were on repeat on my, well, well back then it was a Walkman. Yes. <laughs> so tell us about the early days of Albert Records. How did you get started in the music industry? Working as an editor for Vander and Young, that must have been a massive opportunity for you. Yeah, look, um, I'd been into music since I was about 14. I played in bands in Adelaide when I was a kid. In fact, I played in one of the top bands in Adelaide when I was 15 and uh, all the other guys were like 20 or so, you know. So I was playing in pubs and things from age 15. So I'd done, I'd done that for quite a few years. And um, when, I, when I joined the Angels and, and ended up in Sydney, um, I, I, you know, I really wanted to be a producer. I always wanted to, I was always interested in recording. I, the Playing the drums was something I was good at. Um, and that was the thing that kind of got me into bands. You know, I wasn't a good enough guitar player and I didn't sing well enough to be a front singer. I mean, I can sing, I sing backups all the time, but, um, so, you know, really I, I wanted to be a producer and then Vander and Young, um, was sitting in front of this beautiful Neve desk and, um, I just kept saying, what does that button do? What does that do? Why, why are you doing that? What happens when you, why do you plug that thing in there? And, and after about a year of doing that, you know, getting to know the studio, you know, in, in Albert's, 
itself um, and sharing the studio with ACDC and John Paul Young and like all the people that were being produced there at the time. Um, Mark Opitz turned up on the scene and Mark, uh, Mark was a young, <coughs> a young um, assistant engineer who started working with Bander and Young and ended up co-producing the Angels first two, uh, no, the second and third album, Face to Face and No Exit. And of the course, credit. he's famous for his work with In Excess as well. Oh, In Excess, Cold Chisel, uh, you know, Australian Crawl, there's all sorts of stuff that Mark Opitz has done, Divinals and, and people like that. Um, so I started to um, I started to hang out with Mark a bit and um, one of the things about recording, as any any drummer will tell you, um, once the drum track's done, in, this is in the old days and it probably is still the same, once the drum track's done, there's not much to do, you know, and that happens really early because the drum track's the first thing that goes down, you know. So I had all of this free time. Um, really free time because, uh, you know, there's only so much guitar you can listen to <laughs> going, dit, 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 eh, 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 you know, and so I'd go to the next studio. I'd go to Studio 2, which was actually quite a quite a, um, a fancy studio compared to Studio 1. Studio 1 was the famous one where ACDC recorded and we recorded and it was basically a square box, um, a square box with a glass panel that went into the control room. Um, studio Two was more of a uh, purpose-built, designed studio. It was kind of fancy. Uh, anyway, Mark would just set me up there and say, "Look, this is how you get it going." I'd set up a keyboard and I'd set up a guitar, um, and just start making songs. So I started doing that from a, an early age. You know, really, pretty much the first year. By the end of the first year, I was in working with Albert, so I was making my own my own music apart from the Angels' music. It's funny, you know, you hear this story so many times. Trent Reznor from Nine Inch Nails had a similar story. I think he was a janitor and someone said, here you go, jump on here and start playing with these dials. Of course, he produced the album Pretty Hate Machine, which was massive. Yeah. Do you find that just getting in and doing that opens up the creative juices mainly because there's no one else around? Yeah, look, I, I had a, a, a another unique situation as well, which was in on the first Angels. When I first joined the Angels, it was a four-piece band, and and Doc was playing bass, and um, and we did some recording, and it and it didn't really go that well. You know, it was kind of okay, but it didn't sound great. Doc, God love him, wasn't the best bass player in the world. In fact, he was one of the worst <laughs> bass players in the world. But you know, he had obviously he had charisma and he had he had a whole lot of other stuff going for him. And and really, it wasn't until it wasn't until really that um, we got him out the front. Uh, you know, suggested that maybe he'd be better as a front singer and maybe we should get a bass player. Um, that that things started to change. You know, the Angels actually started to become the band that that we were on face to face and no exit and and uh, and forward from there. But um, I had three co-writes on the first album. I'd written two songs with John and I'd written another one with Doc and Rick, which John also got a piece of for some <laughs> reason. But anyway, the, the first album, the first album, you know, came out with some of my songs on it. And of course the first album died, you know, without a trace. This, you know, I think it sold 4,000 copies or something. It was a total flop. Um, so for the next two albums, I kept trying to put songs on there. And, and I mean, I was, I was a big I was a big uh, punk kind of new wave fan. I'd, I'd just been living in England. I lived in England from 1975 to 76, right? And I saw the Sex Pistols 
uh, at the marquee when they when they supported Eddie and the Hot Rods. I'd seen the Stranglers. I'd seen uh, oh, like just about all of them really um, in that time period in in London. So I was really keen to to you know to have like a rocky punky band, but somehow some reason or other I got locked out of the songwriting. Um, and uh, I didn't get another song on the Angel on an Angels album until No Exit. Right. Uh, sorry, until Darkroom, uh, and that was no secret. No secrets, which you know was uh, was our most popular, <laughs> our most popular single at the time. So I, I kind of I, I wished I'd been given a shot a little earlier, particularly when all of those songs, you know, all those albums sold so many copies. You know, it was really how people made money. You know. From but we're going to have a listen to No Secrets. Mm. Again, this was one of my favourite songs growing up and listening to so much good classic Oz rock. No Secrets was a real standout. Uh, it was in 1980 that this song came out. Uh, yes, it, it was released in 1980 and um, the vocal that Doc did was after he learned about the news of Bon Scott dying. So oh, it was a yeah. very poignant vocal that Doc sang and I, and I helped record it. Oh, wow. Mm. It, was, it was a pretty heavy, pretty heavy day, that one. Well, when we come back, I want to have a bit more of a chat with you about that and, and also Bon Scott. Mm-hmm. Uh, but here is No Secrets from the Angels and, of course, co-written by our guest on the Beat Generation, Buzz Bidstra. 1980. Amanda the actress waits at the station She's drifting with nothing to do With Peloton steps, she's quite to accept the weather and time's turning screw She lives in a tower Armed with defenses She learned from her mother and friends She walks like a fellow Dresses in day glow When she's in pain she pretends But late in the night When the lights are all out She slips off her stockings and shoes She makes you her lover And lets you discover The smile she keeps she keeps for you She keeps no She keeps no She keeps no secrets from you She keeps no She keeps no She keeps no secrets from you She keeps no She keeps no She keeps no secrets from you in Japan, a rescuing man, knows she won't change anything, cause late in the night when the lights are all out, she slips off her stockings and shoes, she makes you her lover and lets you discover the smile she keeps, she keeps for you, she keeps no, she keeps no, she keeps no secrets
That was No Secrets from The Angels, co-written by our guest on The Beat Generation, Buzz Bistrop, who actually wasn't called Buzz back then. <laughs> no. <laughs> no. So what was your name? Um, look, it's a funny story again. Um, when I was in, when I was overseas, um, I did a, a trip, I did a trip around Europe with a friend of mine, you know, backpacking. And we ended up in Denmark and um, we went to this place called Christiana which was a, a hippie commune that it's still there. Christiana's still there in, in Copenhagen, but it was where you bought hash. And we bought a huge, huge block of hash and went back to the hotel and, um, and started smoking it. So after about two hours, we were just dribbling messes in this hotel room. And um, for some reason, for some reason, uh, this friend of mine had a denim jacket on and he had a, a shark's tooth you know, one of those shark's tooth pendant things. And I looked at him uh, and he said, uh, he said, uh, I'm Troy McThrock, Playboy millionaire. <laughs> and I went, ah, oh, okay. And I just put on this hat like this and I said, I'm Buzz Throckman, American Caterpillar tractor driver. And we just sort of, you know, it was like this stone rave which became a little uh, outline for a story that we we're always going to make a, you know, a little film or a play or something about this mythical Throck clan. Um, Angus McThrock was the wily old doctor and Pete Van Throck was from Holland and Bishen Throckapuda was the uh, Pakistani wicketkeeper. So we had all of these people, all of these characters, and we never really did much with them. When I joined the Angels, we had a, it was a four-piece band, as I said, um, and they they sort of had this thing where they liked the, you know, the John, Paul, George and Ringo vibe. They had John, Rick, Doc and Graham, you know, John, Rick, Doc and you know, and I said, uh, and they sort of said, oh, Graham, you know, Graham sort of sounds a bit funny. I said, oh, I don't really care. Um, um, in my mind, I had, I have got another story about joining the Angels. <laughs> they used to be called the Keystone Angels, yeah. and I hated the Keystone Angels. I thought they were dreadful. I, sounds I really like the Keystone Cops, really, doesn't it? Well, but the Keystone Angels were, were a, a fairly ordinary band, let me tell you. Yeah. Um, I saw them a couple of times before I went to England. So 1974 is when they started. So I saw them. Uh, in fact, I uh, uh, did a couple of gigs in my band, you know, with them. Um, and I remember saying to them, uh, I remember saying to Doc, uh, because I used to watch the Jug Band. They were the Moonshine Jug and String Band who were really good. Like they were seriously good. And I remember saying to Doc, why did you guys, wh why did you fold the Jug Band and start this horrible 50s rock band and they said we wanted to write songs we wanted to write rock songs so we figured the best way to do that was to start a band and that sort of made sense yeah 
So when I got the opportunity, I was asked to join this band. I didn't want anybody in Adelaide to know that I joined the Keystone Angels. And I'd only just come back from England and nobody really knew I was home, to be honest. I'd, I'd snuck home, you know, I'd snuck home to see my family and stuff. And I didn't tell any of my friends I was home. So I said, oh, I'll be Buzz Throckman. And they went, who? And I said, I'll be Buzz Throckman, you know, John, Rick, Doc and Buzz. And they went, oh, that sounds really cool. And I went, yeah, there you go. I'm Buzz Throckman. And um, that's where Buzz Throckman came from. So on the first album, you'll see songs written, co-written by Throckman. And Buzz Throckman is the drummer. Yeah. Um, and then, of course, I, you know, a year later, I'm still in the band. So um, I, I hadn't, I hadn't left the band, <laughs> and um, and we were starting to make another record. So my mum used to say to me, "Don't you like your name? What's the matter? Why, why can't you use your real name?" So I said, oh, you know, I told her why I did that. You know, blah blah blah." Anyway, the second album, Face to Face, you'll see it's Graham Bidstrup is the drummer. Uh-huh. Um, the third album, because after that, people would come up and say, where's Buzz? You know, is yeah. Buzz left? And you go, no, it's me, you know, I'm Buzz, you know, right? And yeah. and then the third album, it's Graham, Buzz, Bidstrup, and then from then on it's been that. But it's yeah. kind of cool you had a rock and roll name, <laughs> even though it did sound a little bit like it was from outer space. Yeah, well, you know, obviously Buzz Aldrin was the was the big buzz at that time, you know, yeah. 1969 Buzz Aldrin, Buzz Aldrin had been the guy. Um, and, um, yeah, I always just liked the name Buzz. I, I thought that was, you know, I always liked the American, hey, Buzz, you know, what do you want? <laughs> um, so, yeah, that was, it was just kind of a bit of fun and, and it was a, a joke name that's now 40-odd years old. Ironically, though, you started a band or you were in a band where you all had fake names. Yes. I think I was Stig Stetson for <laughs> that one. Um yeah, Stig or Steve, I can't remember. We all had S names. Did the concept come from what was happening with the Travelling Wilburys at the time? No, it was well before the Travelling Wilburys. Well, it was 80, 86 we did that. So I don't remember. Travelling Wilburys was a bit later, wasn't it? Yeah, it was a little bit, yeah. It was a little bit uh, around, the same, around the same. Around the same. Around the same time. But it was just basically, I, I always had a bit of a love for country music. And, and I mean like real country music like Johnny Cash or, uh, you know, the Carter family when you go right back to that. Uh, I, I liked a rich, uh, I, you know, I liked, you know, Hank Williams, you know. Um, Not this pop country that's out now. No, look, I, I find that pretty hard to listen to, yeah. to be honest. Yeah. I know quite a few people who, who are purveyors of that kind of music and they're very nice people and everything, but I don't really like it that much. Yeah. So anyway, I had this... I had this love of country music and I used to write little funny country songs, uh, which obviously would never make it into the angels. Yes. Um, but I just kept writing them. And when, when Ganga Jang started, Mark Callahan also had a bit of a, you know, he had a bit of a love for country pop. Yes. Um, so we wrote a couple of songs and my good friends at the time were Reg and Pete from the mentals and, and mm-hmm. Marty uh, Plaza. So they were all kind of mates. They were all, you know, the same era and stuff. We'd hang out. And um, one time I just remember saying to Reg, you know, I've got these country songs. I don't know what to do with me. He said, oh, I've got some too, you know, and Pete's got a couple and Marty's got a couple. And I went, oh, really? Um, so when it sort of happened that Ganga Chang uh, took a, hi- a hiatus when Mark did a solo record. Yeah. Um, so I just went, let's make a country record. Yeah. And that's what it was. And I also had some friends who were in the Flying Emus who were a very successful country act. You yeah. know, they were really successful. 
So Ian Simpson played some banjo and I had another friend, Mark Moffat, who now lives in, uh, in Nashville. He's the APRA rep in Nashville now. Right. And he was also a, a very good friend and he played pedal steel. Wow. And there weren't too many pedal steel players. No, no not at all. Yeah, so um, I, I just sort of gathered all of these people around and, and made this record just for fun, but it, it actually went really well. And we found ourselves in Tamworth playing, you know, playing at Tamworth and um, some of the old school Tamworth people were not impressed mm. when uh, when we turned up there. They sort of, you know, I get these questions, why are these rock and roll people think that they can, you know, how do, why do they think they can play country and, and stuff? And I had to I had to let them know that I actually knew more about country music probably than they did. Yeah. Uh, and I had been into it since I was a kid. You know, um, we made the record, went up there and, and played, and and God love God love him, dear old Slim and and Joy came along to see us. Oh, lovely! Like they, and I and I just said to some of the some of the some of the you know the people that would put crap on us, I'd say if if it's good enough for Slim and Joy, it's good enough for anybody. You know, it's it's real country music. And for those who may not know who we're talking about, we're of course talking about Slim Dusty. God rest his soul. Yeah, Joy McKean. Well, let's take a listen to the Stetsons' Train in My Head. You're listening to The Beat Generation. 1987. On a winter's evening, walking home in the rain, I saw her in the fading light. She was riding the opposite way in the backseat of a taxi with her. Train in my head without a driver Howling through the night 
That was the Stetsons with Train In My Head and we are chatting with the legendary producer Buzz Bidstrup and we will be back with more Beat Generation right after this. Hi, this is Shane. And Andrew from The Bad Boys. If you're after quality, hard-hitting journalism that matches four corners... News that'll keep the government and the people accountable for their actions... And current affairs that's more reliable than, well, a current affair... Then then that's that's not not us. us. Bad Boys Unleashed, music, entertainment, celebrity interviews... And the only original Bad Boys news that makes 60 Minutes sound like the Muppets. Join me, him and bad girl Angie for the conversation that no one wants to have, but everybody wants to hear. Bad Boys Unleashed, subscribe for free on Apple and Spotify. This is the Beat Generation, a look at music throughout the years that changed our world. From the Beat Generation musicians of the 60s to the musicians we grew up with throughout the decades, they've become known for their influence on the music that has shaped the soundtrack of our lives, simply known as the Beat Generation. Welcome back to The Beat Generation, produced in association with Bad Boys Productions, Townsville's Triple TFM and the Community Broadcast Association of Australia. Make sure you check out our Facebook page, Music That Changed the World, and our Instagram page, The Beat Generation Podcast. I'm Shane Bryan, and today I'm chatting with one of Australia's greatest music producers. His name is listed on tracks ranging from In Excess to Jimmy Barnes, TV shows to music soundtracks. I'm, of course, talking about the legendary Graham Buzz Bidstrup. Now, Buzz, before you worked with all of these bands, and we're going to talk about Mondo Rock in a minute, did you actually record anything or do anything with Bon Scott from ACDC? Um, I was I was a, a, a fringe player of the Mount Lofty Rangers, and the Mount Lofty Rangers were this band that Bon was in in the about seventy one, I guess, around that time. I I, I think I was, um, you know, I, I was nineteen twenty or you know, seven, it must have been about seventy two because I was twenty, I think. Um, and um, they had this band that lived on a farm just out on, in the hills of Adelaide. And um, there was quite a few things that happened on that farm, um, yeah. uh, including it was a great place to, to find mushrooms. <laughs> um, so, so uh, you know, I'd, I'd sort of go up there every now and again. Chris Bailey, bass player Chris Bailey, was also in Mount Lofty Rangers. Right. Um, and we met kind of very briefly around that time. I didn't really know Bon that well then. He was just kind of this guy. He was a bit older, you know. He, mm. he was like eight years older than me, I think. Mm six or eight years older than me. Um, so, you know, he seemed like this old guy and he'd been in the Valentines and I knew the Valentines and I knew, I knew um, Vince Lovegrove quite well because Vince came to live in Adelaide as well. Mm. So it was just this, you know, kind of group of people that would hang out and make a bit of music. Um, I didn't really, um, I had a, I attempted to write a song with Bon at Albert's one time because yeah. when, when ACDC would, um, would be recording, uh, Bon would sit up in the office and, mm. and write lyrics. That's where I got to look at his book. Yes. Um, and, and, of course, like I say, if we were, if we were mucking around in one of the other studios uh, and they were recording and Bon was in the front office with his book, I'd just go out there and have a joint with him and, um, yeah. you know, we'd sort of 
crap on and you know laugh and carry on and then he'd have his book and he'd be writing stuff in his book and yeah. um a couple of times you know when he went out to have a pee i'd sort of flick through his book <laughs> and he came back get he, some inspiration <laughs> he, he said oh what are you up to and i said i'm just looking through your book man i'm just looking at you at you because he'd have all these little phrases and and words yeah. and and ideas you know and he had um he had let there be rock in there he had most of let there be rock Wow. Um, the lyric of that. He had a lyric of pretty much everything of, of that time, actually. Yeah. Um, so that was pretty special. It was pretty special. And we sat down one time and, and we started writing something, which I didn't I didn't put the lyrics in my book. The lyrics were in his book. Um, and I kept I kept waiting to hear the lyrics on an ACDC song, but I never did. So he <sighs> he, he was uh, he was uh, taking them to his grave. Yeah, he's taking them to his grave. Yeah. Now, you know, the whole music industry around that time during the 70s and 80s, there was a lot of uh, camaraderie. You know, you all knew each other. You appeared on one another's albums. It really was the heyday of classic Australian rock music. Yeah, that, that kind of started a little, just a tiny bit later. It's, it's sort of more like the mid-80s. Yeah. That in the 70s, it was pretty much you were in a band and that was what you did. Yeah, like you didn't really do that many other sessions as such. Um, I think I did. I played on a, you know, I was in a film clip for John Paul Young. I did some, um, I, I did some drumming for George. Um, they had this wonderful way of making rhythm tracks, which was using two twenty-four track machines, so two-inch tape, and they'd have one loop of. 24 track tape that would go round and round, just go boom, cut, boom, cut, boom, cut, or da 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 and it'd just be doing that round and round and round. And then on the wall, they'd have these bits of tape that were the fills, da 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 dum boom, you know, that kind of stuff, or da da And they'd all just be hanging on the wall, and then they would, you know, George would count the bars of what he wanted, and then he'd go, I need a fill here, and he would cut the tape. And put this other piece of this fill in so i used to do those fills i did a few fills for him yeah. um because my drum kit was the house kit my ludwig blue ludwig kit that you'll see on the cover of face to face that was actually the that became albert's studio kit because i just yeah. left it there you know um so i did a little bit of that so what led you to working with mondo rock that was really through uh paul christie the bass player mm. who one time when when we did the New Year's Eve show, the 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 infamous New Year's Eve show, when Chris Bailey was knocked out by a champagne bottle, boom, champagne bottle to the head. Yeah. Um, he had a detached retina from that. We should have actually sued. We should have actually sued the city of Sydney, but we didn't. Um, Chris ended up with a detached retina, and he couldn't do a few gigs. He he was actually God. quite unwell. And Paul came in and played bass, so we kind of knew each other. Um, and as soon as I left the Angels, like the moment that it became public knowledge that I'd left the Angels, I got a phone call from Paul mm. saying we're about to do a, a new album for Monday Rock and we haven't got a drummer. Um, you know, would you come down to Melbourne and play drums for us? And I went, yeah. cool, yeah, sure, you know, why not? Yeah. Um, Ross Wilson, you know, one of my heroes. Ross is a bloody hero. Yeah, Daddy cool, amazing. Yeah, oh, God, you know, I, I, saw, I first saw Ross. He, he didn't remember it, but... I went up and talked to him when I was 15 yeah. and he had a band called the party machine 
and he had another one called the Pink Finks, and they used to come across from Melbourne to Adelaide all the time and play. And I went up to him and talked to him when I was about 15. And I didn't look like a 15-year-old. I was actually very tall. I was my full height. I was six foot one or something, right. you know, at, at 15. So I didn't look that young. But, um, yeah, you know, he, he was a hero of mine. And it, also there was another friend of mine in the band, James Black, mm. who was also from Adelaide, a yeah. guy that's on Rockwiz, plays the keyboards. or yes. used to play on Rockwiz. So James was a mate from Adelaide. Um, and I just went down there and, you know, made this record with them, the Chemistry album. And um, then they asked me if I wanted to play in the band and I politely declined and just said, look, the reason I'd left the Angels was I didn't really want to play in a band. Yeah. You know, I, I, I didn't, I, actually, I didn't mind playing in the band. It was more about not having any control over what you did yeah. because I wanted to be a producer and I wanted to work in studios. If you were in a band in those days and, and pretty much any time, it's like, hey, we're on the road, you know, you're, yeah. you're away for like five weeks. And, and you couldn't do anything else. You're just sitting in a motel room in Queensland or sitting in a motel room in Perth or something, yeah. you know. Um, so I said, no, I, I didn't want to play in the band, but I was quite happy, to, you know, to do their record for them. Yeah. Um, and, um, yeah, that was that was kind of how that came about. And um, a couple of times when the drummer that took the drum seat afterwards was J.J. Hackett who yeah. unfortunately passed away last year. Yeah. And, um, and JJ, JJ was a bit sick too. So he would occasionally get sick and um, they, I'd get these calls, you know, like I'd get a call saying, can you jump on a plane and come up to Cairns? You know, JJ's sick. Mm. And I'd, I'd go up to Cairns <laughs> and play with Mondo Rock for a while, you know, which is kind of fun. And, of course, you co-wrote the song Chemistry. No, I didn't. No, no, no. No, no, that was uh, Chemistry is a... That's a Ross one, I think. Right. That's a Ross or a yeah, a chemistry is yeah, chemistry is a Ross song, I think. Ross Walton, yeah. So, what songs did you play drums on? Uh, everything except the ones that were recorded before. State of the Heart. State of the Heart was recorded with uh, Gil Matthews playing drums. Mm. Ratso, he played drums on that. And Come said the boy, I think, is on that, and I didn't play on that. I think right. that was somebody. But I played chemistry. Oh, only the biggest song of Mondo Rock. You missed out on that one. <laughs> yeah, I missed out on that one. But you know, I had I had chemistry and I had summer of eighty one and yeah. those kind of songs. Um, I'd play. Yeah, two great songs too. Yeah. Well, let's take a listen to chemistry from nineteen eighty one. Of course, featuring Buzz Bedstrup. Yeah, and if, if drummers are if drummers are listening, uh, the the hi hat is doing sixteenths. And it was the first time I'd managed to get serious sixteenths happening with my left hand because I play open hand. I play hi hat with my left hand. I don't do this bizarre. Oh, you I don't cross hat. over. Yeah, so check the sixteenths on that, mate. Well, this is Mondo Rock with Chemistry featuring Buzz Bidstrap on the Beat Generation. 1981.
I'm Shane Bryan. This is The Beat Generation here today with my special guest, Graham Buzz Bidstrup. He's played in so many bands and produced so many amazing artists. Of course, probably his most famous years are the years in Gangajang. And we're going to be talking a little bit more in depth about Gangajang and those years in next week's episode. But, Buzz, Australian Crawl, I heard a story that you played on Reckless as an unofficial member of yeah. Australian Crawl. Yeah. And according to Simon Binks, you and him actually produced more of that record than the multi-award winning Mark Opitz. Well, we we had a lot to do with it. It's a, it's a, I'll try and make it a short story, but I was hired by Australian Crawl through Mark Opitz, obviously, because yeah. I knew Mark through my time with the Angels and blah, 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 yeah. blah. And um, I'd just done... I'd just done a couple of tracks for Richard Clapton on The Great Escape and right. Mark had produced that. And uh, Mark rang me up and he said, oh, look, Australian Crawl want to recut all of their hits because they don't own the masters of them and they're doing a deal with Geffen in America and they want to just recut every one of their songs mm. but they don't want to do it with Bill, their drummer. Right. Right. So I went down to Melbourne a uh, couple of days in the studio and and. Uh, I kept trying to sort of change the songs a bit, you know, go, mm-hmm. why don't you try? And they said, look, all we want to do is just basically cut them the way we did them. Like we can play just them. Just play the drums. <laughs> just play the drums, right? Just just play the drums. So I went, okay, cool. So I just played the drums. And then we came back up to Sydney to uh, Rhinoceros Studio, which was the, you know, one of the major studios in Sydney. And Mark had six weeks booked at this studio to do, I think it was uh, about 14 tracks they wanted to do. And this is all of their hits, right? Every yeah. one of them, you know, Downhearted and blah, 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 and They're All and everything, right? And we cut all of the tracks. Well, I cut my part of the tracks. I cut mm. the drum tracks in two days. Like I did seven tracks a day. Just went bam, 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 done, bam, 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 done. You know, so after two or three days, and and like I say, they were just playing the songs that like they'd played them for the last five, six years, you know. Yeah. So the whole thing was finished within a week. Like the whole 14 tracks were finished. Yeah. And um, there we were, like sitting in the studio, booked for another five weeks, right? Yeah. And uh, I had all of my, I had all of my gear. I'd, I'd bought the first DMX drum machine that appeared in Australia. Wow. I bought this this drum machine because I was doing film work and I used to do, I did six or seven film soundtracks after I left the angels with this other friend of mine. And part of that, part of that thing at the time when there weren't drum machines, you used to have to do a a click, you know, for the say a scene Mm. and you'd have this click, and you'd know where you wanted to put little hits. Like, the, you know, the guy walks in the door and you want it to go, da something like that, right? Yeah, yeah. So it was all mathematics and you'd work out where the hit points were along the line and you'd work out the BPM, the beats per minute that you had to play out to hit all of those things. Then I'd have to go in and play drums. I'd either yeah. play drums or I'd play percussion or something. So when the drum machine came out, I just went, this is, this is way cool. <laughs> I'll have one of them. So I, I bought this drum machine and it ended up actually making more money hiring it out to people than I made from doing sessions, which is kind of weird, right? Because I was a big session player. I did yeah. lots of sessions. You, you know, there's records everywhere that's got my, my drumming on them. Yeah. <clears throat> but this drum machine, 
I had it at Rhinoceros. I had my keyboard. I had two Prophet keyboards that I used to play. Mm. One was a, a bass one and one was a, a Prophet 5. Mm. So I had them all sitting there and all hooked up, you're right? And then um, Simon had a song called Red Guitar and he wanted to muck around with it. He wanted to actually do, he wanted to muck around with it. He wanted to change stuff, you know, to yeah. get into it. So I went, sure, buddy, I'm with you. So we started doing this muck around with my drum machine and keyboard and stuff. And that song became White Limbo. From Red Guitar, it became White Limbo. And then we did a couple of other bits and pieces. Um, Looking for Cool was one, I think. Anyway, we've done about four or five tracks with the drum machine. And then James played Reckless. And it sounded a bit like a, a Neil Young meets Bob Marley. In fact, mm. it's the same chords as No Woman, No Cry. But Wow. Um, you know, he'd, he'd played this song and it was kind of this, this, you know, it was a nice song. It was a great song, yeah. great melody, great set of lyrics. Couldn't understand what he was saying. <laughs> I had no idea what he was singing about until I read the lyrics. Um, but we did this track, we did Reckless with my drum machine, just go boom, <laughs> with this yeah. huge reverb on it. And then I played real hi-hats and yeah. I played a keyboard, a keyboard line. You can hear it on the track. You can hear this keyboard line. Um, and, um, yeah, that, that sort of you know, became Reckless, yes. which went number one. Um, yeah. And I was actually meant to have a production credit on that. I mean, that was the deal that I'd made with Mark. You completely changed the song. Completely changed it, like totally changed it. Yeah, and same as we changed Red Guitar into White Limbo and, yeah. and others. And there was a lot of... I dare say a lot of me on those, plus a lot of my little production techniques that I showed Mark, one of them being delays, using delays on the drum machine instead of it going boom, it'd go boom, boom, boom. Mm. So I'd put these little delays on different different parts of the drums. Um, so, yeah, at the end of it, I didn't get the credit, which <laughs> I was a bit pissed off about. Um, but there you go. That's what happens. Uh, Mark sort of said, oh, I'll make it up to you because he was doing a Richard Clapton album. And he said, oh, you know, you can come and help produce that with me. And that was called Solidarity. Right. Um, which was anything but Solidarity, I can tell you. It was a weird, <laughs> a weird bloody record, that one. Um, and it was pretty much at the end of the end of 84, it was the middle of 84 or something. Well, Buzz, thanks for joining us this week on The Beat Generation. Next week, we're going to take a look at Buzz Bestrup's years in Gangajang, his time on Sweet and Sour, and what he's up to now with Uncle Jimmy's Thumbs Up Foundation. But to take us out this week, Aussie Crawl and Reckless featuring Buzz Bestrup on drums. I'm Shane Bryan, and this has been The Beat Generation. 1983. Stop.